Amen. Good morning, church. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Um, let me say this before we uh, jump in. They don't do this for your praise, for your attention, uh, for me to brag on them. Um, but how sweet was that? Um, and what a perfect morning as we talk about um, the true gospel and true teaching and um, just being satisfied and letting the word of God be enough. Uh, for us to strip down the stage this weekend and just sing the truth of God and hear your voices. Um, if you're lucky, uh, sometimes you're in the office, you'll catch Tyler doing that in his office. And uh, it's just, what a better way to work than uh, to hear Tyler just doing that um, on a Monday and things like that. So um, they don't do it for our praise, uh, but man, uh, we've got some talented folks. We give glory to the Lord, uh, but we give honor and thanks to them for uh, the way that they serve us and um, I hope you enjoyed that time as much as I have. Um, turn in your Bible to Matthew 7, and uh, also, while you're flipping around in the Scriptures, I would also encourage you to go ahead and slide a piece of paper or a bookmark or something into 1 John chapter 4. Um, we're going to use 1 John 4 to help us um, obey Matthew chapter 7 in this um, time this morning. So um, while you're turning and finding those things on your devices, um, if you will go ahead and uh, stand. I'm going to read our passage this morning, and uh, it'll be on the screen behind me, and then we'll dive right into the text. Uh, I'm going to read Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, and uh, this is what it says. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree or every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray together. Lord, um, as always, God, we ask that we would be humble people, um, God, who submit our lives to your word. God, on a morning where we have sung um, the truth of your word, God, uh, where we are going to proclaim the truth of your word as it's revealed in Matthew 7. God, I pray that your word would take the forefront, um, that it would be the thing that our eyes go to. Um, God, it's the only thing um, that the power of your word, um, by your spirit working in us, is the only thing that has the power to change our hearts, to make us more like you, to grow us um, into maturity in Christ, uh, to conform us to the image of Christ. All of the promises that you make in your word about your word, um, God, are not dependent on me. I just pray that you would help me, um, guard me from error, keep me faithful to your word, but God, we're grateful. Um, I pray that your word and Jesus Christ would be enough for us for all of our days. Um, so God, help us behold you in your text, in your word this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. Well, I don't have very many memories from when I was young. Uh, one of those, which I don't know why it has stuck with me for so long, was I looked up to my cousins. Uh, my mom is one of eight children, um, so we've got you know cousins that I don't even know of on my mom's side of the family, um, just oodles and oodles of cousins, and Christmas was always chaotic, and now they have kids who have kids, and the whole thing. Um, got some very older cousins, and they were my heroes growing up. Um, the ones that I got to know, Christmas, holidays, all those things, they lived in other states, most of them in Florida. We didn't get to see them very much, but I loved... Um, my older cousins. One of them got to live with us for a long period of time and beautiful memories of childhood and those kind of things. But uh, one of my older cousins, uh, his name was Lee, um, one of the very few memories of when I was a child was when Lee got a dog. 
and uh, you know, Lee brings over the puppy, and the puppy is nice and cute, um, but it's a little more violent than like your average puppy, and uh, was intimidating to me. I didn't like dogs growing up, and um, I thought it was a husky, and I think you see where this story is going, and just you know, a couple weeks later, a couple months later, I end up asking my dad, like, hey, holiday's coming up. Is Lee going to bring the dog? And dad was like, no, Lee got rid of the dog. And uh, it turns out that the dog would eventually start bringing dead things up to the front porch, but not just like dead, like, you know, it's laying there dead, but like torn up and mangled and like, you know, a crime scene kind of dead. And it turns out um, Lee's dog wasn't a dog. Um, He was actually part wolf and uh, quickly got rid of the dog once we found out the dog was a wolf. And uh, I say that and I tell you that story because that's exactly what Jesus is going to talk about um, in our text this morning. That there are folks that look like sheep, but they are wolves, and they are out to prey. And Luke is, or not Luke, uh, Matthew is going to show us in the text. Um, and we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. I don't have the time to give you the entire summary of that this morning, but we've kind of turned the corner towards the end. We've got two more weeks left in this series. But Jesus has essentially walked us through what a true believer looks like in heart, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, our inward heart attitude that we're spiritually broken, um, how we interpret the law, um, the purpose of believers to be salt of the earth and light of the world, and we've talked about those things, um, how we view the law and interpret the law, that we're not just after the externals, but we need a righteousness that's inside. Um, we're not just trying you know, to prevent ourselves from sinning on the outside, but I, can, I don't even need behavior to sin, right? Like, I can, I can sin with this thing and this thing, that I'm not just, you know, wicked indeed, but I am wicked in mind and in heart. And Jesus ends chapter five with, you need a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. They had the good behavior, but his condemnation of them was you're like whitewashed tombs, right? You're clean on the outside, you've got all the behavior, but you're dead on the inside. That you need a greater righteousness than just good works. And they were you know, deceived into thinking that their good works could save them, and their good works weren't even good. They were manipulative, they were deceitful, they were adding to God's law, all of those things. We talked about those things. Um, Jesus walks through Matthew chapter six and tells us uh, what the believers uh, in in him should treasure, that we treasure the things of heaven, not the things of earth, which therefore determines what we get anxious about, right? We don't get anxious about the things of the earth because we're not treasuring those things. You and I will get anxious about the things that we treasure. There's a whole lot of things that I don't get anxious about because I don't care about those things. You get anxious about the things that you care about. And then you also pray about the things that you care about. What we treasure will determine what we pray about. And Jesus spoke to us about prayer and how we run to God and we pray and we ask and we seek and we knock and we can trust that God's good and that he's sovereign and he's going to give us great things regardless of what we ask for. Um, He's going to do his will and the main thing he's going to give us is more of himself, that as we seek him and run to him, all of those things. And then lastly, um, we've kind of moved into this transition period where now we're week two into Jesus's landing the plane of the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, he really kind of turned the corner and started talking about how now it's time for us to make a choice. He's talked about what genuine heart level following Jesus looks like versus the outward kind of show, the hypocritical view of the scribes and the Pharisees, what genuine relationship with Jesus looks like as opposed to the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they had all the works, but they had no genuine heart level devotion towards him that they were still trying to win approval and earn approval instead of living out of a response to God's grace and God's approval that we already have in Christ. They were still trying to earn it and work for it. And the gospel is you don't. 
The gospel is you realize you could never earn it and work for it, and it's freely given to you in Christ, so you forsake your sin, you turn from it, you repent of it, you put your faith in Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness is freely given to you and bestowed on you. So we no longer give and pray and fast to try to earn God's love, but we do it because we already have it. Out of a response to God's generous grace towards us, that we give, we serve, we love because of what he's done. Does that make sense? And now Jesus is gonna say, you gotta choose. It's time for us to choose. Which way are we going to choose? The, the wide way, the, the wide gate, the easy way that the world would say to choose, the choose your own destiny, be your own God, pursue your own truth, do your own thing, and we all kind of end up in the same place. Keep trying to be enough and do enough and perform enough. Religion is also in the wide way. That your salvation is up to you. You're a good person. You can do this. You can earn it. Or the narrow way. The narrow gate and the difficult way. Which is to forsake your ability to try and earn God's love because you know you can't. And to fall at the mercy of Jesus. Receive the finished work of Christ. The shedding of his blood for your sin. And the way that seems wide. We talked about this last week. Seems free, seems open, do your own thing, follow the ways of the world, follow the teachings of the world, all of the self-help, all the things we're gonna talk about today. Be your own God, pursue your own truth. That's good for you, that's your truth. My truth is this, I'm gonna live my own way. I'm gonna determine my own identity, my own worth, my own gender, you name it. I'm gonna do all of these things. And that's actually the way, it looks free, it looks open, looks wide, but it leads to bondage. Leads to defeat, leads to suffering, leads to pain. And the paradox of the gospel is the way that seems narrow, the way that is narrow, the way that seems constricting, that why would you submit your life to this outdated book of you know, tons of do's and don'ts, which is not what the book is, by the way. Why would you submit your life to this? The, the way that looks restrictive is actually the way to life and to peace and to joy and all of the things that we've ever longed for. Peace in Christ, joy, being satisfied in who God is, finding our identity and our worth in him, that when you pursue this narrow way, it actually opens up and leads to life. James calls it the perfect law that gives freedom. So he's told us to choose, and it is no accident that the next sentence Jesus gives us is our passage this morning, that you've got two roads that you can choose from, and beware of false prophets. Beware of those that are coming and trying to take you off of this road. The number one thing, the number one demonic attack, the number one battle that you and I are fighting is a battle of the mind. That the one thing, the top thing that will move people off of or away from the narrow gate and the hard way, the narrow way, the one thing that's gonna remove us and move people away and turn people astray is false teaching, false ideologies, false philosophies, cultural philosophies, cultural ideologies that don't have any biblical merit whatsoever. False teaching is the battle. It has always been the battle. It will always be the battle. Proclaiming something else as truth or there's no such thing as truth as opposed to what the scriptures and what God himself has revealed as truth. We have always been and we will always be in the battle of our minds, always. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 10. Three through five, it says, for though we walk in the flesh, right, we're human, we're not waging war according to human means, according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is what we destroy. This is what we're battling against. Not human weapons, not human means. Arguments, ideologies. That word stronghold there means fortresses in the Greek. That these other teachings, and they come from outside, they come from false teachers. We're gonna see today that they come from inside the church that you and I are just as susceptible to this as anyone else, but they also come from you know, places outside the church that false teachings, false ideologies, false philosophies come from social media, come from Netflix, they come from Disney Plus, they come from everywhere that lies about what is true, what is not true, what is reality, how God has designed the world, how you and I fit in it are everywhere. And we are constantly engaging in a battle of the mind. The number one thing that will lead me astray, that will lead you astray, that will lead your children astray, is not Satan putting his fang in their flesh, but Satan putting a lie in their head. We are waging a war in the battle of the mind. If you think about it, the very first sin ever was a false teaching. It was Satan showing up to Eve and saying, did God really say? Taking the word of God and twisting it. Did God really say, don't eat the fruit? And then Eve quotes back the word of God, and then he twists what the word of God means. Says, no, 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 no. God knew that if you would eat this, you would be like him, knowing good and evil. And what does she do? She partakes, right? Adam right there with her. The most condemning phrase for men in the scriptures is Genesis 1 or Genesis 3 when it says, and the man who was with her, watching not defending from a serpent, but watching. False teaching is the reason that sin has entered the world, and it has not stopped since then. False teaching has existed ever since God started speaking to humanity. False teaching has been present. It's present throughout the Old Testament, it's been present in the New Testament, and it's just as present in our day. It has taken different sizes and shapes and forms all throughout human history, but it has always been and will always be a war of the mind. Truth versus falsehood. There's a reason that the scriptures constantly calls us to fix our minds on what is true. Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. The gospels, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It has always been a battle for the mind because the mind will inform our hearts and our heart will inform our hands. What we think about, we will care about. What we care about, we will chase and we will move after with our lives. And Satan's schemes have always been to plant lies. Why would he put a fang in your flesh that would cause you to run back to the God of the universe when he can just plant a lie in your head and get you walking down the wrong path, thinking you're on the right one, thinking you're living out your truth, thinking that you're pursuing what's true and what's right, living the wide and the popular way, going down the wide road. He would rather put the lie in your head. Let me just give you kind of a scan of the Old Testament. Um, Teaching against false prophets and false teachers is consistent in every letter of the New Testament. Every book in the New Testament at least mentions a false teacher or false teaching or a warning against false teachers. Every single letter in the New Testament is very prevalent throughout the Old Testament as well. In Deuteronomy 13, um, Jesus warns um, his 
people, Israel, that if a prophet shows up and they perform signs and those signs happen and that's great, but then they call you to worship pagan gods, to don't listen to them. And I want you to see the seriousness at which Jesus um, contends with false teachers and false prophets who show up and claim to speak on behalf of God and make promises that God never made and say things that God never said. Deuteronomy 13, five, Jesus, or not Jesus, God, also Jesus, Trinity, all those things, commands that these prophets be killed. Deuteronomy 13, five, Deuteronomy 18, same thing. If a prophet speaks and it doesn't come to pass, if he says, thus says the Lord, or God told me this, and what he says doesn't come to pass, he calls for that prophet to be put to death. Let me read it to you, Deuteronomy 18, 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Jesus doesn't play around with this. Why? Because it's the primary scheme of the enemy to twist reality, to twist truth. And you know just as well as I do, it's never like a complete opposite truth. It's taking the truth and just adding a little bit to it, just distorting it slightly, twisting it a little bit. This is what the word pervert means, to, to twist or to change, to change what it was intended to be. But this is the command, and I think, you know, this is Old Covenant promises and Old Covenant law and those kind of things. Um, we're not killing anybody this morning, but I guarantee you, teachers and preachers and small group leaders and everybody else in the church would tremble and spend way more careful consideration in God's word as they study if they're going to speak on behalf of what the Lord says if Deuteronomy was true and still instituted today, right? Bring back Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 13. Where if I get up and make promises and God told me this and God said that and God's gonna do this for you and it doesn't happen, that I would be put to death. That's not the case anymore. But I guarantee it would cause more people to tremble at God's word. The reality is there will be a judgment for these teachers and they will face death. But I wanna show grace as well. Some false teachers um, teach false teaching in ignorance. Some do it because they are ravenous wolves. Some people, and I, I'll show you in just a minute, that you and I are not susceptible of this, or not susceptible to this. We are just as um, able to fall into, to stumble into false teaching. All of us are. And some of it is just the environment that you grew up in and what you were taught. But then there are some who are ravenous wolves who will use the word of God to make promises that God never made, to say things that God didn't say for their own gain, for your approval, for your love, for their own pockets, all of those kind of things. And that's just in the church. And then there's false teaching all over outside the church. But let me give you a few more examples. Jeremiah um, the context of Jeremiah is Jeremiah is one of those prophets where um, he starts prophesying before Israel gets taken into exile, and then he keeps prophesying after they're taken into exile. So before Jeremiah 2, he's talking about, hey, Israel, we've committed evil. We've forsaken God, the fountain of living water, and we've turned and dug for ourselves cisterns. Like we're holding water in these broken jars instead of turning to the fountain of living water. And then God's people, because of their sin, get taken into exile by the Assyrians and then later by the Babylonians. And then Jeremiah starts prophesying 
that this was because of our sin and we need to repent. We need to turn back to God. But these false prophets would rise up and they would promise that no, we're not in sin. We're not gonna die. God's not going to um, send famine. He's not going to send the sword and they would prophesy all of these great things. Very similar to our world today. Prophesying, God told me that these great things are going to happen to you. And these prophets would rise up in Israel's day and say, God's not gonna send famine towards us. God, God loves what we're doing. God's not gonna send the sword against us. And how does Jesus respond? It's very scary. In Jeremiah 14, Jesus says, the very things that those prophets said I'm not going to do, I'm going to do to them and to everyone that listens to them. They said, I'm not gonna send famine and sword. I'm going to send famine and sword and kill them by famine and sword and everyone who listens to them. That's the punishment in Jeremiah 14. That's what God has to say about false teaching. Everything that they say is not gonna happen, I'm going to do to them. And he gives them another rebuke in Jeremiah 23 that essentially says there will be everlasting reproach and perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. It's Jeremiah 23, 40. Another example, Zechariah. Zechariah shows up. He's another prophet in the midst of the exile and he promises um, that God is going to bless them. Um, Zechariah even is given this word from the Lord and he was a genuine prophet. He was not a false prophet. He was a genuine prophet prophesying that God was going to cleanse Israel of the false prophets. And it comes to pass. He says there will be a day where this will happen. And he says they will be stabbed by their parents. Like this is how violent it gets. This is how God responds to people speaking on behalf of his name and making promises that he never made, leading people to worship pagan gods, to follow false ideologies and false systems. The entire book of Ezekiel is this condemnation of these prophets who had risen up and said that we're good, they were soft on sin, not going hard after the people and the sins of Israel, they weren't drawing hard lines between what is good and what is right, what is clean, what is unclean, what is holy and what is unholy. And Ezekiel rises up. And what's so fascinating about this story is each of these rebukes um, are just so intense towards false teachers. And God tells Ezekiel, hey, your wife is going to die and you are not allowed to mourn her death or to cry over her death because you are going to be a living picture to all of Israel of how they are viewing me and their sin that because of their sin, they are um, apathetic towards me, that they are continually turning from me, disobeying me, dishonoring me, falling in love with other gods, and they don't think a thing about it. And that was the punishment, that was the picture. Those are just some of the presence of false teaching and false teachers in the Old Testament. The New Testament, like I said, Almost every, every letter mentions a false teacher or a false prophet or a false teaching. And many of the letters were literally written to combat false teaching. Colossians, the book of Colossians was written to combat a heresy that was existent in the church at Colossae. The entire book of Colossians is about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, his deity. The, our favorite verses about Jesus are Colossians uh, 1, 15 through 20 talking about how he formed all things and by him um, he holds all things together. Um, he's 
the exact imprints of the nature of God, all of those verses that we love about Jesus are written to the Colossians. Why? Because there was this heresy, this false teaching that, yeah, Jesus is great, but if you wanna be a real Christian and a, and a mature Christian, there's a higher knowledge than Jesus. So Paul writes the letter to the Colossians saying, no, 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 no. We don't grow apart from Jesus. We don't you know, start with Jesus and then leave. He's not the starting line. He's the whole thing. We mature in him. We grow in him. He is God in the flesh. He is the invisible God made visible. He holds all things together. He created all things. There's nothing past him. We mature in him. We grow in him. We depend on him. And that's the book of Colossians. The book of Galatians, same thing. People had come and started adding to the gospel, these false teachers that, yeah, grace is good, but you've got to add some works to it. You've got to add circumcision. You've got to add these things. And all throughout church history, there have been groups, there have been religions, there have been denominations that have come and said, yeah, God's grace is good, but then you've got to do these other things. You've got to say these certain things. You've got to do these certain things. You've got to attend these certain services. And what does Paul say? No, 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 no. We are justified, we are made holy, we're made righteous by faith alone. It is not faith plus circumcision, it's not faith plus works. We are set free by our faith in Jesus Christ. No works required. In fact, if you think you can work to earn it, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is not a spiritual alley-oop where Jesus on the cross just put the ball on the rim and then you gotta go and dunk it with your works and attend the services and say the sayings and all of those kind of things. Jesus said, it is finished, not it's almost finished. We don't sing songs that say, you know, Jesus paid for most of it. You gotta kick in a little bit, right? Like, we don't sing that. Why? Because he paid for all of it. It's done. We don't add anything to it. And Paul says in Galatians 1 that if you add to the gospel, you don't have a gospel anymore. You have no gospel at all. And he says, those that add to the gospel should be condemned. First John Second John, third John, we're gonna look at first John in just a minute. Second John was written to a woman. Third John was written to a man. And both of those letters are encouraging this woman and this man to remain faithful and hold fast to truth in the day that is rampant with false teaching. Great letters that I encourage you to read. And they're only one chapter each. First John's got one chapter. Second John's got one chapter. Bible, audio Bible dude can read it in about three minutes. You can handle it. But I would encourage you to read it. So many of the New Testament letters were written to directly combat false teachings and false teachers. So let's look at what Jesus has to say because Jesus in Matthew 24 says, um, and we love Matthew 24 for lots of reasons. He talks about the end times. And here's how you know. Here's the sign of the times. One of the things that we usually skip to is that the gospel will go to all nations, right? We love that. Praise God for that, that he's begun this work, he's gonna complete it, and his sovereignty and his power and by his might, he's going to ensure that the gospel goes to all ethnos, all ethnicities, all people groups, that Jesus Christ will not return until every people group has heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he will come. But he also says that while that's happening, that many false prophets will rise up and they will lead many people astray. That's also a sign of the end times that false teachers, false teachings, false ideologies will rise up and will lead many people astray. They will twist the truth, they will distort the truth, and they will lead many to destruction. It's a sign of the times. 
And I'm not here to, you know, discern or give you an estimate on where we are with all of those things. Um, your best guess, I would say, is look at the people groups that have been reached and look at how many are still unreached. Still a long way to go. But praise be to God, he could do it in a moment. He could do it in a year. And I, I mean, false prophets are rising up everywhere. False teachings, false ideologies in our schools, online, on social media, in our entertainment, you name it. And I'm not getting political here. Um, in fact, I would argue that most of these things that are being pushed aren't political anymore. They're biblical. They're challenging biblical truths. The nature of God, nature of truth, how you and I were created, all of those things. But let's look at what Jesus has to say. Verse 15 of Matthew 7, he says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now the word beware there is an active thing. It's not just a sit back and look around kind of thing. It's a present, and in fact, it's in the active voice. It's a present active imperative or a present command. And in the Greek, it may, present tense means it's a continuous action that you and I are commanded to continuously be on guard, to watch out, that this is an active thing, that we're not passive in this. In fact, I mean, all throughout Scripture, the New Testament is littered with commands for us to test to examine, we're gonna look at the command to test here in just a minute, but to test teachers, to test teaching, Jesus is about to say, test them by their fruits. That listening in the New Testament, listening for the people of God is always an active thing. That you and I, just because I have a microphone and I'm talking doesn't mean what I have to say is true. I used to joke and get up on stage at crew with all of our teenagers and make them do things. Like, hey, punch yourself in the nose. I would just put a mic on and say, all right, everybody, here's how we're gonna begin. Hit yourself. And people would start like swinging. And I'm like, no, I'm kidding. Like, just because I have a mic doesn't mean you need to obey what I have to say. Just because it's popular doesn't mean it's true. Just because I use Bible verses in Bible words and I know the lingo doesn't mean you should listen to it. The preacher, the teacher, the congregant, the layperson, the believer in Scripture is commanded to test the things and examine the things that are taught and said with the Scriptures. All of us are. I am just as susceptible to fall into this. I am. I can fall into it. I'll show you a verse in Acts in just a minute where that is just as true. But all of us can fall into this. And just because I'm up here doesn't mean you should take what I have to say as truth. You should examine it. So it's an active thing. It's a continuous thing. And then he says, beware of what are we looking out for? False prophets. I mean, the Greek is literally, the word for prophets, prophetes, and it's pseudo, the prefix. Pseudo prophets. Lying prophets. The word pseudo means lying or means fake. It means to present yourself as something that you're not. And this is why it gets dangerous. Because Satan is not going to run at us with a pitchfork and horns. We would run from that. He is going to take the truth of God and just twist it slightly. He's going to prey on our desires just like he did in the garden and just like Paul warns us about in 2 Timothy 4. That we would forsake sound teaching and we would acquire, of our, acquire um, pastors and preachers and teachers and ideologies that tickle our ears and that prey on our desires that make us feel good that promises the things that we really want and that we really love. And it, it, they look like the real thing. 
These teachings and these ideologies might sound for a second like the real thing, especially if you don't know the real thing. And we're gonna walk through some tests. I'm gonna give you some questions that you can examine and test a teaching with. But the end goal of today is that it doesn't matter how many tests we give you, how many questions we give you to ask. If you don't regularly spend time with the truth, you won't know the lie when it comes. You just won't. And tools and tips are great. In God's common grace, he's given us these things. These are coming straight from his word. So that's great. It's phenomenal. It's what he has called us to use. But the best way to expose the lie is to know the truth. To regularly be spending time in the word. So it says, beware of these pseudo prophets, these false prophets. And then he says, who come to you? And this is fascinating. If I can get a little nerdy for just a second. Um, in the English language, uh, we have kind of two mood, two voices. We have the active verbs and the passive verbs, right? Active verb, um, let's go back to English class for just a second, if you're with me, class. Um, he says, active verbs are, you know, Parker hit the ball, right? I'm the subject, I do the action, right? It's an active verb. I hit the ball. I perform the action. Passive verbs are different. Passive verbs are when the subject receives the action. So I was hit by the ball, right? I'm still the subject, but I didn't hit the ball. The ball hit me, right? It's a passive verb. I'm not the one performing the action. I'm the one receiving the action. Um, Greek has both of those, but it also has the middle voice. And this word, this verb, these false prophets who will come to you, the middle voice is interesting um, because it is a verb that is always given with reference to self. And what I mean by that is like, I drank coffee this morning, um, would be a middle preference or a middle voice verb, meaning that I drank coffee, but it was for myself. It was with reference to myself. Does that make sense? So Greek has a way, Greek is way more expressive than English. It has a way to communicate this kind of action. That it wasn't, you know, hitting the ball out there. It wasn't, you know, getting hit by the ball. But it was, I did something with reference to myself, with myself in mind, for myself, all of those things. So here's what's so fascinating is Matthew says that these false, <coughs> excuse me, these false prophets, <coughs> they will come to you, but he uses they, <coughs> can you throw me that? Sorry. He says they will come to you in, uh, thank you, um, in the middle voice. So they will come to you with reference towards themselves. They will come to you with their desires in mind. They will come to you for their own advantage. They will prey on you for the sake of themselves, for their reputation, their glory, their ego, their pockets, you name it. But it really captures this wolves preying on people, that they will prey on you for their own gain. That's how they're gonna come to you. And how are they gonna come? Deceitful, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They will look like the real thing on the outside. They are deceptive and they are dangerous. And like I said, they can come from outside the church, but they are also going to come from within the church. And this is the very thing that Paul warned the church in Ephesus about in Acts chapter 20. Paul plants the church in Ephesus. He leaves and look at what he tells them in Acts 20. This will be on the screen, 27 through 30. For I did not shrink from declaring to you, the whole counsel of God, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. So they'll come in, not sparing the flock. And verse 30, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They will come from outside the church and they will show up from inside the church. And this is not just a warning for other people. This is a warning for us. Like I said, I am not inspired and inerrant. I can stumble into error. I can present something out of context. I can misrepresent God. All of us are susceptible of that. None of us are inerrant. None of us are inspired. God's word is, but I'm not. And when there's a fault in preaching, it's never the text. It's always the interpreter. And I could just as well fall into this. So let me say this. We're gonna give you some tests in a minute. And I want you to put the sights, put the target on me. And I don't say that arrogantly, like I say that humbly. Please. The call for all of us is to test what you hear with the text, with the scriptures. And I'm not above that. I'm not royalty here. I don't get special treatment here. That the beauty of the church is we all keep each other accountable to this. And we have elders and overseers who specifically keep me accountable and who help guard the theology and all of those kind of things. But this is a command for all of us. I could fall into this, you could fall into this. And Paul says in Galatians 6 that when we see other people entrapped in these things, that it's not a lost cause, that we don't leave them, that we don't immediately kick them out, we restore them gently. So if you ever come to me and say, hey, I want us to sit down and open up a Bible and talk about something you said, my respect for you will not decrease, it will increase. Because I'm not above being rebuked or corrected. I would love, my favorite meetings are to sit down with some of you in our body and to open up a Bible and just talk and talk about what it says. But this is a warning, but it's also um, a mirror that we need to turn around and point at ourselves, that we could very well be the ones who stumble into false ideologies, false systems, false philosophies, and false teachings. And they're gonna come from inside the church, which means they're gonna look like the real thing. They're gonna lead churches they're gonna have microphones on Sunday. They're gonna use Bible verses. They're gonna quote scripture. And just because they're quoting scripture doesn't mean they're giving you the word of God in its proper context. Satan is so deceptive and so deceitful. He is the father of lies. He is the greatest false teacher there ever has been and ever will be. His mode of operation is lies. And he is running rampant in our world today. But the good news of the gospel is Christ will preserve his church and his word can pierce through the lies, can set us free. There's a reason Jesus said he came to set the captives free. Does that mean physically in bondage to our sin? Yes, but it also means in bondage to these false ideologies. Jesus says in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That he would use the truth of the gospel to pierce through the lies. And what's crazy about this is when we talk about false teachers, um, used to be you would just talk about your own pastor. But now, because of social media and those things, um, the wolves don't even have to come into your church. You can stream them, right, as soon as you leave here. You can stream a wolf. You can stream a wolf in sheep's clothing. And they can show up everywhere, online, on our Instagram feed, in your small group. In that Bible study that y'all picked for your small group to go through, 
that we are called to test everything, myself included. Everything. So let's look at the test. I want to give you the test in 1 John chapter 4. So um, we are going to use 1 John to obey Matthew 7. This first verse, Matthew 7, 15, where he says, beware, this active thing to test the teachings that we hear. We're gonna use 1 John to do that because 1 John chapter four opens with this verse. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, every teaching, every ideology, every teacher, everything you hear. Don't believe it all. So many people think that Christianity is you know, giving up rational thinking, turning your brain off. No, it's actually turning it on. It's actually a very rational belief system. We're called not to take a vacation to turn our brains off, but to turn them on. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And this is a command to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And for the next 11 verses, John is going to decipher between the true prophets and the false prophets. So we're gonna use the parameters that he gives us, and we've kind of created some questions that go along with each of these tests. We give you five tests from First John that you can use to test other teachings. And uh, some of the questions up here are small. If you're in the back, um, if you want the notes for this, as always, um, they come right from the text. I'd be happy to airdrop them to you before you leave. We're gonna post these questions later on this week so you can catch them on social media. If you wanna take a picture of them here, you can, um, however you wanna handle it. But let's walk through these tests because John tells us, don't believe everything but to test Every spirit, test the teachings, test the ideologies, test the teacher, and this is the first test. Test number one is, did the teaching point to and exalt the person and finished work of Jesus Christ? Did it point to and exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because John says, look at what he says, by this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not Confess, Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Does the teaching point to and exalt the person and finished work of Christ? And under each of these, we're gonna have some supplemental questions. So I would encourage you to snag a picture of this, write them down. But here's some supplemental questions that kind of go with that big point. Is it focused on the person and finished work of Jesus? Was this teaching man-centered or God-centered? There's a common phrase in our world today, um, especially in the world of teachers and preachers, um, of narcissus. Um, it's kind of a play on words with narcissus and exegesis. So um, what we are called to do is exegesis. The prefix ex is to take out. So we're called to look at the Bible and bring out what it says in its original context, what the author said, what the authors meant, what the audience would have heard, that we look at the text and we bring out what it says. The wrong ways to do this are eisegesis. The prefix ice is into. It means to take our modern philosophies, our modern ideologies, and to put them back into the Bible, to read the Bible through this 21st century American lens and what we think is true, what we think is false, all of those kind of things. This is happening everywhere, right? There's a... TikTok that somebody sent me a couple days ago where Jesus was looking at Lazarus and said to come out of the tomb. And they were saying that Jesus was calling Lazarus to come out with his sexuality because he said, Lazarus, come out, right? Reading into the text a very 21st century idea, which is far from what Jesus was doing. He was raising him back to life. 
He wasn't talking about his sexuality at all. But taking modern ideas and putting them into the text, and then the one um, man-centered or God-centered is the one uh, that we call narcissus. It's putting you into the text. It's we read the Bible story and we insert you into it. All we do is talk about you instead of talking about Jesus. Let me tell you, humbly but urgently, the Bible is not about us. We are not the main characters of the Bible. And if you want kind of a, a pro tip for false teachers, how to spot them, almost all false teachers will only teach narrative. They'll only teach stories. They won't walk through First Peter that says, stop doing this and start doing this and here's what God has done because you can't insert yourself into that. But they will teach Old Testament story. They'll teach, you know, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John story, narrative in the gospels. Why? Because it's really easy to insert you into the story as the main character. That you're David or you're Joseph. And right now your struggle is just your setback for your comeback and all those kind of things, Right? And that God shut the door, but he's opening a window so you can climb through it and you're gonna you know, rule over things and God's got you in this place and he's guaranteeing that you're gonna be here later. No, the Bible is not about us. You and I are not David. This whole idea that no weapon formed against you shall prosper and that you're David and your giant is your debt and you're, God gave me a word this year, you're gonna slay your giant. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say success, right? Like, that's exhausting. And it's making promises that God never made and it's saying things that God never said. The story of David slaying the giant of Goliath was to preserve Israel and preserve the seed of the woman from Genesis 3 that God was preserving where Jesus would come, the greater David, and he would slay the greater giant. That's the reason David slayed Goliath. Because if David dies, then the seed of the woman is cut off and God's a liar. And God comes through on all of his promises. I could stand before my giant. If someone, I mean, how deceitful is it to, to look at a congregation and tell all of you that success is on the way, your breakthrough is on the way, when trouble could be on the way. Cancer could be on the way. Death could be on the way. There's no guarantee anymore. Why? Because God's given us Christ. He's given us eternal life in him. We have all we need. Philippians 1, if we die, we get Christ. If we live, we get to experience more of Christ. That there's no, I mean, my New Testament says that we'll have trouble, that we will be persecuted, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In this world, you will have trouble. First Corinthians, outwardly, we are wasting away but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That in Christ, God has given me everything I need. How deceitful, how arrogant is it to get up on Sunday and to focus your attention on the next thing that we want from God instead of what he has already done in Christ. Hey God, the cross is great, all those things, but where's my breakthrough? Where's my blessing? Where's my stuff? Where's my earthly treasure? Where's my miracle? Can God do all of those things? Yes. In his common grace and in his kindness, does he do those things? Yes. Let's not paint the picture that God wants his people to, to be sad and upset and struggle. No, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We're evil and we know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more does our heavenly father long and love to give us good things? But to take God's word and to promise you that blessing or a miracle is on the way, apart from Jesus Christ, he is the blessing. He is the miracle. And to 
show up on a Sunday and make the whole service and the whole teaching and all the songs about the next thing we want God to do for us in this life instead of the fact that he's purchased for us eternal life on the cross is to drag the cross through the mud. Our services and our songs and our teaching must be about what he has done, not the next thing we want him to do for us in this life. God is sovereign, he is good, he is kind, he is going to give us good things. But to twist his word and to promise that all of us got this blessing on the way, Another one, this human-centered and God-centered teaching is um, just this infatuation in 2022 with this excessive love of self. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul actually says that this is a sign of the end, that they will be lovers of themselves. But boy, does our culture communicate this self-love and be your own truth and pursue your own way and you just gotta be comfortable with yourself and love yourself. Scripture is constantly guarding us away from that, that our heart is deceitful. It is the most deceitful of all things. We wouldn't follow it. And let me, don't hear what I'm not saying. As Christians, we're not supposed to hate ourselves either, right? The the balance of this is that we affirm and we love and we hold on to everything that is true about us in Genesis 1, right? That we're made in the image of God. We have dignity, we have worth, we have value. God has put his image on us. We have the ability to worship and reason and all of those things. We aren't like any of the other creatures. We have inherent worth and value because of who created us. That is all true. But at the same time, so we affirm everything in Genesis 1, but we recognize and we resist and we go to war with everything that is true about us in Genesis 3. That yes, I'm made in the image of God and I have worth and value, but I'm also broken. I'm not inspired. I'm not inerrant. I don't know what's true. I don't need to follow my own heart or follow my own way. I'm broken. I'm selfish. I'm deceitful. I'm manipulative. I'm greedy for my own gain and for my own glory. I can't trust myself. I can't trust my own way. So it's not that we hate ourselves, but we recognize that, yes, we are fundamentally made in the image of God, but there is also something constitutionally broken about us because of our sin. And this is the way in which we live. Forces us to be humble, causes us to be dependent on our savior, all of those kind of things. All right, second test, we gotta keep moving. Second one, did the teaching call us to wage war over or against our sin and overcome by the power of the gospel? Next verse, look at what John says in 1 John 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That you and I, that we are called to In Christ, we have already, but not yet. We're called to resist and to overcome and go to war against the sin in our lives. At the moment we're saved, judicially, before God, we are holy, we are blameless. All of that is true, but you you and I well know that as soon as you put your faith in Jesus, you don't suddenly just become a good person, do you? Your desires don't suddenly change and everything's great and you never sin anymore? No, that... We are justified before God, that when God looks at us because of Christ's righteousness is put on us, that he sees, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Christ's righteousness on us, but still, constitutionally, you and I, we're a mess. So what has God done? He's put his spirit in us, he's sanctifying us over time, 
He's conforming us to the image of Jesus. He's making us more like his son over time. His spirit is convicting us of sin and giving us the power to overcome sin. But does the teaching communicate and talk about a struggle against sin? Does it call us to wage war against our sin? Here's some supplemental questions. Does the teaching confront your sin or make you feel comfortable in your sin? Is our sin something that caused a holy God to pour out his wrath on his son and greatly affects our intimacy with God or is our sin just, oh, you know, just part of life. They're just oopsie daisies, right? Or do we go to war against our sin? Are we comfortable in it or do we confront it? I love this next question. What type of language was used to describe humanity? Are we described as good people who need a hand or sinful people who need a savior, right? Ephesians 2. Are you being taught that you are dead in your sin and you can't save yourself? Or no, you're a good person. You just need to do these two or three things this week and then you'll have it figured out. One big alley-oop, right? God's grace is not that good because your sin is not that bad. Or are we dead in our sin? And our only hope is Christ raising us to life by his mercy through his death and resurrection. Is our problem external in nature or is our problem internal in nature? This is also kind of a pro tip of false teaching that you and I, we're good people and that God's got these promises and these blessings on the way because why wouldn't he? We're good, right? And it's the devil who's interrupting all of those things. That God had a plan to give us all this stuff and the devil just took it. And we never take personal responsibility for our sin. Is Satan active in the world? You better believe it. But the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And so many of us have a tendency, myself included, to gravitate towards these false teachings and these false ideologies because if someone else is the problem, if the devil's the problem, if the world is the problem, then I can be the solution. But if I'm the problem, then somebody else has to be the solution. And that's the gospel, is that the problem is deep in me. I can't save myself, I can't earn it, I can't deserve it, and Jesus has done it for me. But we love to, especially in 2022 in America, we this you know, pull yourself up out of the hole, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of culture that I'm gonna overcome, all this self-help teaching that I'm gonna do it, I just need to be a little more productive and I just need to maximize my schedule a little more and I just need to you know, do these few things a little more and then I'll get it. I mean, my Instagram is just filled with here's a few more ways to be productive and here's a few more ways to be a better business person. And here's a few more ways to be a better leader and here's just a few more tips to be a little better and sooner or later you'll get it. If you just do these few things, then you'll arrive. Then you'll be good enough. That's not gospel, that's self-help. There's a reason why when we gather on Sundays, I don't give you three tips to go and try to be a little better each week from God's word. Because the gospel is that you'll never be good enough. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has been good enough and by his spirit in us, we can be obedient to these texts, not to be saved, but because we've already been saved. You see the difference? But man, do we love those. Test number three, did the teaching promote the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world? 1 John 4, 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. If your teaching, if your ideology, if the preacher that you stream is a worldly man talking about worldly things to worldly people, 
then you might want to be a little cautious about what he is saying. Is the entire sermon focused on the things of this world? More possessions, more stuff, more breakthroughs, or is it focused on the next world? What God has done in Christ? Heavenly treasure. The Bible is constantly trying to get our eyes off of this world. Our teaching, our preaching has to be about what God has done in Christ, in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm, not about the things of this world. Does the heavenly realm affect the earthly realm? It sure does. But the focus, the thrust, the punch of the message has to be the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. We don't need steps. We don't need self-help. We don't need to talk about your dreams and your destiny or your breakthroughs. We preach about what God has done in Christ. Number four, did the teaching come from the Bible or was it, pre, or was it presented in its, and was it presented in its original context? Next verse, 1 John, verse six. They're from the world, but what does John say? He says, we are from God. And when he says we there, he's talking about um, the apostles. He's talking about the authors of scripture. So he's pointing them back to the inspired word of God. He's not talking about all Christians here. He's talking about specifically the apostles. Peter said that um, no prophecy, no scripture was came up from human reason, but the, these apostles, these writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter refers to his own writings of scripture. He refers to Paul's writings of scripture in 2 Peter chapter three. But he said, no, we, the authors of scripture are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, right? They're from the world, but if they were true, genuine prophets, they would listen to us because God has given us the scriptures. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Here's a few questions. Was the teaching based on the author's intent or the speaker's agenda? Did the teacher dive into what Matthew said and what Matthew's audience would have heard or does he take a verse and take a word and twist it to say something that fits his own agenda? Did the teaching cause you to be transformed by the word or conform to the pattern of the world? Was the word of God rightly handled to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness? And all of these questions, by the way, come directly from scripture. And we're gonna post the questions this week and they'll have the references on them. Uh, we left them off for the sake of space on the slides, but they'll be on there this week. This comes directly from 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and here's, how, here's what it is useful for. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. Does the teacher use God's word to get his own point across, his own agenda across, or does he use it to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train you in more righteousness towards Christ? Is that how he's using the word? Did the teacher rely on God's written word or personal word from the Lord? Was the purpose of the sermon to entertain and enable the sinner or to edify and equip the saint? Another pro tip of a false teacher is let me read a few verses and then let me close my Bible and start walking around and say the title of my message is and not go back to the text. We are called, you want the word of God. It's the only thing that can grow us, mature us. You don't need my opinion. You don't need my wisdom. I'm 30 years old. Some of you got way more earthly wisdom than I do. You don't need it. Don't come here for that. Did the preacher Stay in the word of God. There's a reason that pulpits existed back in the day. 
There's a reason that I asked for a podium like this. They weren't supposed to be high church and those kind of, it was the, the reason for a pulpit was it would be in the center of the room. So the entire room would be pointed towards the word of God and it would force the preacher to stay behind the word of God. So that he would deliver the word of God. You don't need my wisdom. You don't need my opinion. The Bible's not a big metaphor for our lives where we just insert ourselves wherever we want. You need the word of God in the context in which it was given. And if the teacher is not working and laboring and studying to give you that, then there's a good chance it might be a false teaching. And then lastly, number five, did the teaching cause more affection for God, his people, and the gospel? And this comes from 1 John 4, 7 through 12, and this is that um, God's people will be marked by love. That the reason we're marked by love is because God has first loved us in Christ. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. That we would be marked by love. That every message, because of the gospel, should cause and increase our affections for God, our affections for his people, for the church, and our affections for his word and the gospel. This is the spirit of the message that we should be listening to is the application, supplemental questions. To do something to earn God's love or to remember God's love in the gospel? Is it an alley-oop? Did he put the ball on the tee and you gotta go swing it this week, go do these few things, and then God will love you? Or is it to remember the gospel that God already loves you and therefore we obey the commands in scripture? You see the difference? Did the teaching consist of grace but no truth? Or truth but no grace? Or did the teaching consist of the grace of God but the truth of God's word in his word and in the law. And the teaching cause to be humble, sacrificial, generous, self-denying, loving. Was the motivation to obey grace or guilt? Here's a good one. Did the teaching make you confident in your own abilities or confident in God's power and love working through you? All right, to wrap up, we gotta look at these last two verses and then call it quits. Jesus also says, um, not just test the teaching, but test the teacher. And I'll read these to you real quick. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree can bear good fruit. And Jesus changes metaphors from wolves and sheep to trees and fruit. And here's essentially what he's saying, that every false teacher and every false teaching will eventually be betrayed by his fruit that you can say you're an apple tree all day long until an orange shows up and then you can't hide anymore and that false teachers and false teachings will be exposed eventually by the fruit of their teachings and the fruit of the teacher. But you and I are to judge and to test a teacher and a teaching by the fruit, by the content that's given, but also the conduct and the character of the teacher. Is this a wolf who's using the gospel to prey on people for his own agenda, for his own power trip, for his own ego? Or is this a humble shepherd desiring to serve? And the way you test that is to ask the same questions that we just walked through, that we asked about the text, just ask them about the teacher. Does this teacher have a reverence for the word of God? Is he relying on the word of God or his own skill? First Corinthians, Paul says, I didn't come with wise and lofty speech, I came with Christ and Christ crucified. Is he trying to exalt Christ or exalt himself? In his demeanor, in his tone, in his clothes, 
Is he trying to draw attention to God or draw attention to himself? There's a reason preachers in the day, we're talking uh, with a former staff member of High Point who has to wear a robe at his new church, and he said he loves it because it makes the pastor invisible. There's a reason they used to wear those because you wouldn't get distracted by the brand of their clothes or how expensive their shoes were or anything like that, but it let the word of God take center stage. And as soon as you got over the robe thing and you were cool with it, then you just listened to the words from the teacher. Is he approachable? Is he humble? Does his life match the message? And please, I would welcome you, not arrogantly, like I said, but hold me to these things. When I get arrogant, when I seem unapproachable, it's a shame in our culture today that for you to question or challenge a pastor means you're, you're promoting disunity in the body. John literally calls us to test the teachings and test the teacher. Since when is discernment a sin? And if you're at a culture or at a church or listening to a, a pastor who is unapproachable, who is not able to, to sit with you and to open up the scriptures and answer for the things that he says, there's a good sign that there's false teaching running rampant. If you're in a culture where the pastor gets special privileges and royalty, I don't, I don't deserve any, I am just like you. I am broken, I am a sinner. I'm not special. I'm not royal around here. I don't need special treatment. My wife is not the first lady of High Point Carryville. We are broken, sinful people. And privileged to do life with you and to study and to present the scriptures to you and love you and care for you. It's the greatest joy of my life but I'm not above any of this. So call me on it, check me on it. That's why we have elders, that's why we have you. It's the responsibility of all of us to test the teaching, but test the teacher. No pastor should ever need security to walk through his own church. We don't sneak out the back door. We don't teach and then go on and let the body you know, hang out with them, each other. John Piper wrote a book or he did a whole series actually called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. If you want the short version, it's an article called Brothers, We Should Stink. And it is not literally, but it's all about how shepherds should be amongst the sheep and should smell like the sheep and should act like the sheep and should be around the sheep. That this pastor thing is not a celebrity calling. It's a call to serve. It's a call to be a shepherd. It's a call to be in the midst of the sheep and be in the mess. It's not to preach the sermon, wear the nice clothes, go viral and to go back and uh, be removed from the people. But it is a call to serve. And man, it's the greatest honor of my life. I mean, I, Christ would be enough for me if he asked me to do something else, but I would not enjoy it. Um, this is what I love to do. And I am just susceptible to fall into some of these things. And I hope and I pray that you call me out on it. For the sake of this flock, for the sake of your families, for the sake of your kids, for the sake of me. And then lastly, here's the end. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus gives them, gives us the end. We'll recognize them by their fruits. They'll be cut down, but until then, it is up to us to test everything. Every teaching, every philosophy, every idea with the word of God. Take every thought captive and hold it up against the word of Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that the greatest false teacher has been defeated already through Jesus Christ, but not yet until he returns. Jesus has won the war against the greatest false teacher. And the way that you and I will win the battle is the same way that he won the war. What did he use? In the garden, 
He used the word of God. It is written. At the cross, he used the work of God. It is finished. He completed it for us. If you're listening to a sermon and you don't get the it is written, the work of God, or the, the word of God, and it is finished, the work of God, then chances are it's a false teaching. The way that you and I will overcome the lies with truth is with it is written and it is finished. The same way that Jesus has won the war for us. And because he won the war and his spirit is in us, you and I can win the battle for truth. But we've gotta stay in this book so that we can see the lie. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, as we respond in song, we're grateful that you are the way, you are the truth. As overwhelming as that many questions can be, God, our greatest thing we can do is point ourselves, point our children to you, to you in your word, how you've chosen to reveal yourself in the gospels. God, the greatest thing we can do is just to keep fixing our eyes and fix the eyes of our children on you. God, the more that we dwell in the truth, the more we'll be able to see the lie. And God, we're grateful for your promises that you will preserve your children. You will see us through to the end. And God, as we respond this morning, we're gonna sing a song that is just explicit gospel. Talks about your goodness and your mercy. Talks about our sin and our rebellion. And God, you're enough for us. I'm grateful for a day like today when we just strip down the service and your word that is preached and your word that is sung is enough. God, all we have is you. We have nothing else. In 1 Corinthians, it says, having nothing yet possessing everything. God, you're all we need. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.